Well, good morning. Welcome to Gospel City Church. Who's fired up to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Man, great to see so many of you. I'm seeing Notre Dame students, St. Mary's students. Can we give them a round of applause if they're here? Thanks for being here. Welcome back. It's good to see some familiar faces and some new faces. Be sure to stop by the meet and greet if you're a college student. We have an actual special table for you. They'd love to meet you out there. And, uh, and, and we're just so glad that you're here. But hey, hopefully you brought your Bible with you. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to open to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, and we're going to be in verses 34 through 40. But I want you to put a finger there in Matthew 22, and I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, and then I will meet you there in just a moment. Real quickly, last Sunday we had a great time at our vision gathering. About four to 500 of our hosts, our members here in this room on Sunday afternoon. And we were praising God and we were giving thanks for what God is doing in and among this church. And we had a great meal. I left very encouraged. I heard from several of you that you were encouraged. There's obviously a lot more people between our two services on a Sunday morning that are here. If you are not a member at Gospel City Church, if you have not dove in and, and, and made this thing your home and, and you're strapping on weight, I want to invite you to not just be a consumer of Gospel City, but to be a contributor. And uh, there's so many opportunities coming up in the fall. You just heard about them, but the groups, the classes, the studies are opportunities for you to not just gather in the large setting, but in the smaller setting so that you can grow up into Christ. And then in September 24th for four weeks running on Sunday mornings is our next membership class. If you've yet to do that, please do it. Church membership matters. It's an opportunity for you to come under the leadership of this church, for you to joyfully say, I want to be led and I want to uh, distinguish myself in the community with these people and I want to use my gifts to build up the saints and the body of Christ. It's a great opportunity. Can't encourage you to take part in it enough. But uh, today I was going to preach a message to you entitled, Love God, Love People. But then as I got studying this week in Matthew chapter 22, I never made it past the love God part. So the message is now loving God above all else. And next week we're going to talk about loving people and making disciples of all nations. If that sounds familiar, if those phrases sound familiar, it's because last, year, last uh, January we actually made the mission statement of this church, loving God, loving people, and making disciples of all nations. And the reason for that is because Jesus was pretty clear about the main things he's asked his followers to do until he comes again. And I don't know about you. Uh, but as long as I live for Christ and as long as I await for his return, I want to be sure that I'm living into the instruction that Jesus gave in his word specifically and clearly. I want it to be said of my life. You know, he didn't have it all together, but he sure loved God. And he seemed to be about loving people radically. And he sure seemed to want to make disciples all around the world. And I want that to be true of this church. And I want that to be true of your life and your relationship with God. But like anything in scripture, it can be easy to say or claim something and it not always be easy to do. Today, I want to lean into what Jesus means when it comes to the great commandment. So the big idea that we'll drill down on in our time is this. At the center of Christian faith must be an unrivaled, all-encompassing love of God. 
at the center of Christian faith must be an unrivaled, all-encompassing love of God. And I want you to get your eyes on a copy of Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to start there and then we'll turn to Matthew chapter 22. Now hear the word of the Lord. Exodus 20 verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that your na- is your neighbor's. Verse 18, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. I'll turn to Matthew chapter 22 in your Bibles. And looking at verse 34 of Matthew 22, it says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, that's Jesus, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let's pray together. Father, We praise you for your word this morning. We praise you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We praise you that you are holy, that you are perfect, that you are matchless, that your greatness is unsearchable in all of the earth. So Lord, even as we come this morning, even as we deal with a popular text or something that we have heard time and time again if we've been in the church, perhaps we haven't heard it at all. 
Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts? Would you go before us in this moment? Would you do what only you can do? Would you convict us? Would you shape us? Would you rebuke us and correct us on a soul level that you might have all of our love and all of our allegiance and all of our worship? In the mighty and matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, the reason that I wanted to start with the Ten Commandments is first because I want you to see that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What God requires of his followers has always been. And that's because of his perfection and his holiness. And if he was anything less, then he would cease to be God. So from Sinai to the cross, the law of God communicated in part the love of God. Now I say that the law of God communicated in part because God's grace and God's mercy is running all throughout the Old Testament. <laughs> the reason that the Israelites had a right standing with God or were in communion with God was not because they were keeping the law. In fact, they were breaking the commands that God gave. It was because of God's grace and mercy that set them free as cap from captivity. It's like we sang this morning that God sets us free, that he turns graves into gardens. That's what he did for the people of Israel, he set them free from their captivity, but he gave them the law so that they could express their love for God by living out the things that he commanded. So from Sinai to the cross, God was communicating his love. Really, it was from the garden to the new Jerusalem because God's law has always been love. And so when Adam and Eve were born in the garden, when they were created in the garden, uh, they had God's law written on their hearts and on their lives. Uh, the Ten Commandments are really a written down iteration of the very law of God that was running through the veins of the perfect human beings in the garden. And you may have noticed as we got into Exodus chapter 20, the first four commandments deal with our relationship to God. It's a vertical command, right? And then the second six deal with our relationship to one another. It's a horizontal law. But the second thing I want you to understand, at this point in history, the Ten Commandments served as Israel's moral direction and compass as it pertained to their relationship to holy Yahweh. So the law of God showed what God required of his redeemed people. The law of God is what put humanity in right standing with God or the people of Israel. And keeping the law was staying on track and having a relationship with the God of glory. But the problem is this. Since sin entered the world, humanity has been so marred that it couldn't keep God's laws or God's commands on its best days. There's not a person in this room who has perfectly kept the Ten Commandments. I have not kept the Ten Commandments. There's not a person in Israel's history besides Jesus who perfectly kept the Ten Commandments that God gave. So before Jesus, and even for us today, because of sin, the law becomes a mirror for you and I to hold up. And when we look into the mirror of the Ten Commandments, you know what it proclaims? That you are guilty. That you fall short of the glory of God. Listen to what Romans 3 verse 20 says. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. So if God's commands do anything for us today, when we look at the Ten Commandments, we see we fall short of the glory of God. We won't be justified by the law. The law is just revealing 
sin to us, the law is revealing that which is not the heart of God and that which we often give into and live in. The law simply reveals that our relationship to God is so marred and so flawed that it would take a miracle for any one of us not to be sent to hell and receive eternal damnation forever. We are on the wrong side of God's moral law. Everyone. Look at what Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5 proclaims. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman. So born just like you and me. God, the son of God coming to earth, born of woman, born under the law, born under the same commandments that you and I have been charged to live by. But look at the purpose, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Our miracle came in the person of Jesus Christ. God incarnate put himself in our likeness and in our skin and under the moral law and he kept the whole law and Jesus became our sinful inability to keep it so that we could become his righteousness. And John 3, 16 and 17, you know 16 well, it proclaims this, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And verse 17 goes on to say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now listen, should a perfect, holy God condemn the world based on his law? Absolutely. A God who demands perfection. He should condemn you. He should condemn me based on his moral law. But at the core of everything God is and at the core of everything God has done is love. And God created humanity in love. God preserved for himself a people out of love. God gave the law out of love. And God sent Jesus in love. And God incarnate was a picture of love. And God has not left us to figure out this love thing on our own. He sent forth Jesus who did not abolish the law, but who fulfilled the law. And Jesus performed what we never could. And by his grace, he made a way for the law to be written on our hearts once again, just as it was in the garden. And in Christ, the law of God no longer becomes our duty, but it becomes our delight. In Christ, the law no longer saves, but communicates our love for God who loved us Though we don't deserve it, we are transformed by the blood of Christ. And what does the hymn say? Love so amazing, love so divine, but what? It demands my life and my soul and my all. So our love as believers is guided by the law of God. It was modeled in the person of Jesus Christ. And it has always proclaimed from the beginning of time, love God and love people. So by the time we get to Matthew chapter 22, Jesus has lived a life of perfection. He's well established his ministry. He's healed many people. He's rode into town on a donkey days before his crucifixion. And he's made plenty of self-righteous critics and haters. And here we see him with the Pharisees having just defended himself against the Sadducees. So you had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were these religious sects within Judaism 
and they were rule extravagant, they were hypocritical, they were legalistic, and they were self-righteous. They had set God's commands aside, and they had begun to create their own moral code, their own standards and systems of holiness. You know what happens when you set God's commands aside? You end up with far more things than he actually requires. You start to think about what you can do. You think about the rules that you do. You think about the way that you do church. How can I earn the holiness of God? And you end up with a system that still falls short of the glory of God because you've set what God requires aside and you've chose to do it in your own way. That perfectly sums up the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They knew the Torah, they knew the laws of God, but they created their own systems of holiness and they were among the most criticized and the most challenged by Jesus. Now look at verse 34 in Matthew chapter 22. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that they had silenced the Sadducees, that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together because that's what hypocritical Pharisees do. Uh, They say, oh, the Sadducees didn't have it together. The Sadducees couldn't stump Jesus when it came to the resurrection of the dead. And so we're we're far more pious than them. We're far more holy than them. So here come the Pharisees. and, And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. So the Pharisees are like, we'll send our best debater. We'll send our best uh, lawyer in to ask the hardest questions. He, he for sure will stump the person, Jesus, this teacher. And he says in verse 36, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And understand it's here that Jesus could have said anything. Think about it. Jesus, the son of man, all eyes on him, standing before the Pharisees, standing before the Sadducees, standing before the crowd. What is the first and greatest commandment? What is most important in all of the law? Jesus could have said anything. It's here that Jesus gives the greatest demands from Yahweh and he himself is the son of God, God in the flesh. Whatever his answer is, is what you and I have a responsibility to live into every day until we meet him face to face. So the the main point I want to give to you today is this. Loving God is a whole person engagement caught up in the adoration of Christ the Lamb. Loving God is a whole person engagement caught up in the adoration of Christ the Lamb. Look at verse 37, Jesus replied, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now, it's first important to note that Jesus doesn't give the Pharisee some earth-shatteringly new concept. He doesn't say something new. In fact, his answer to the pharisaical lawyer was all too familiar. Number one, it ties back to the first commandment that God gave on Mount Sinai. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. God has always required that his preeminence and his glory not be shared. And yet we have a problem with that. Because often we want to take glory for ourselves or often we want to prop the good gifts that we've been given up and give them glory rather than glorify the God who gave it. Psalm 96.4, the psalmist declares, the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. 
So to love anyone or anything more than God or as much as you say you love God is to break God's first and foremost command, which in effect leads to breaking all of the commands. Because when you stop putting Jesus or God on the throne, then it leads to all different types of sin toward God, toward one another, and we will fail at loving him and loving others. But the second reason Jesus' answer is all too familiar is because he's merely quoting from the Shema, which was recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 11, and Numbers 13. Jono, in his message, referenced it a few weeks ago. But the word Shema to the Hebrew people means hear. And that's because when you go to Deuteronomy 6, it says, Hear, O Israel. Really important. The first and greatest commandment is coming up for you, and it is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and it talks about with all of our might. But it goes on to say in the Shema that as the Hebrew people, as the Israelites, when you go to prayer, you need to have the first and greatest commandment plastered on your forehead. And you need to have it dangling from the left arm of your cloak. And for centuries, generation after generation, as the Jewish people would go to prayer, plastered on their forehead on parchment paper, dangling from their clothing were the words, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So even as Jesus is declaring the great commandment to these Pharisees, they may have had these words dangling from their clothing and on their persons, but get this, it proves that you can recite the truth and be really far from it. It proves that you can have proximity to what God requires and miss the point entirely. It means that we can claim this as our mission statement here at Gospel City Church and not even come close to living it out as God has commanded and save us for. It means you can know all that there is to know about your Christian faith and not have a love for God that outweighs every other love that this world has to offer. So it begs the question for us this morning, how are you doing with loving the Lord your God with your whole being? How are you doing with loving the Lord your God with your heart and your soul and your mind? And the gospel of Mark adds strength. And that's really what Jesus is communicating in the great commandment. The distinction between heart and mind and soul and strength is not meant to compartmentalize our love for God into these different human categories or definitions. It's communicating an all-encompassing love, a love that is not rivaled by anything this world can offer. God is worthy of everything you can possibly give. We are called, we're redeemed, we're sealed as God's holy people so that we can love God, our Lord, with every part of our being. Everything else pales in comparison to God. Nothing comes close to our priority of loving God. We give him our time and our talent and our treasure and our emotions and our intellect and our existence and our service and our reputation. We need to give God our very breath as we wake up every day. And it's the only proper response when we recognize that he is the sovereign Lord of glory who has adopted us in his grace and set us free by the death and resurrection of his son. Marvel at it once again this morning, Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still lawbreakers, Christ died for us. 
So if you get the gospel this morning, if you're preaching the gospel to yourself every day, then your love for God can't be too extravagant. It was an extravagant love that has saved you, and therefore it must be an extravagant adoration that we give in return. And so look at the text. Look at what Jesus says. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Let's take it word by word. The word heart to the Hebrews, this was the core of a person's being. It's the most personal part of who we are. Your heart is where life and existence flows from. So Proverbs says, guard your heart with all vigilance for from it flows the springs of life. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what exudes from your life is being formed in your heart. What comes out of you What comes out of your life, the way you live, the way you talk, the way you think, it's being formed in your heart. In newsflash, God wants that space. Jesus wants that space. Jesus wants to take up residence in your heart. Jesus wants to reform your heart. Jesus wants to renovate your heart. He wants to get the junk out and he wants to be on the throne of your heart. He wants to transform every part of your being because he is on the throne and nothing else God wants all of your heart and then he says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul your soul is most closely translated to your emotional center a person's emotions when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane his soul was grieved he was grieved in his soul same kind of idea God wants to meet you on a soul level He wants your emotional center. (laughs) He wants everything that you're feeling, everything that you're thinking, every hard circumstance that raises up emotions and feelings in your life, he needs to be the center of it all. You don't gotta be scared of emotions. God gave them to you. God just wants to be the Lord of them. So John 4, 23 and 24, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. And he says, the hour is coming and is now here When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, lowercase s, and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God wants your spirit. God wants to stir your spirit. God wants to stoke the spirit within you, the inner man, so that you would be overwhelmed and so that you would respond to his glory and his grace. He doesn't need manufactured emotionalism. He desires real, authentic feelings and God-given emotions that are tethered to a love for him. So get this, you can take your joy to the Lord unabashedly. You can take your sorrow to the Lord. You can take your anger to the Lord. I spoke with somebody recently. They said, you know what, I'm a little angry at God right now. I said, God can handle your anger. Take your anger to God. He's big enough to handle your anger. God can take your questions. You can take every question that you've ever had to the Lord of glory and out of love for him, every feeling you've ever felt can be complete and steadied and conquered and made whole in God. And if I'm being honest, in a church this size, in a Bible preaching church, some of us could get more in touch with our emotional side when it comes to loving God. If you don't think of yourself as creative or poetic or expressive, 
This may be the place that the Lord wants to stretch you in when it comes to loving him. The soul level is where the spirit begins to ignite singing in our lives. If we're, you know, we sang for 35 minutes and they spilled over a little bit today. And if you're sitting there thinking, gosh, they sing a long time at this church. Maybe the Lord wants to stretch your spirit, your soul. Maybe the Lord wants you to think, man, how are these people so fired up about singing and proclaiming praise to the Lord Almighty? In your soul, the spirit wants to stir prayers of exaltation to Jesus Christ. In, in your soul, the spirit may prompt you to exude a posture of worship. They're all through the Bible. Uh, you know, we open our hands to the Lord. We raise our hands in surrender. You see it all through scripture. We bow our knees. The very word, the most popular word for worship in the New Testament is proskuneo. It's laying prostrate before the Lord, laying on our face. And yet often in a lot of traditions in church world, we kind of like set those things aside. You know, I, I think a lot of the way that we operate in, in America church, in American churches, is like, we, we've seen the negative, and so we swing the pendulum the other way. So there's like a whole charismatic Pentecostal movement where it's all emotions. It's maybe emotionalism, and it's going out of control, and everybody seems really fired up. But then we swing the pendulum back the other way, and we're like, we are truth people. We will never raise a hand in church. I grew up in a church where we didn't like show too much emotion. We didn't raise our hands. But, but that is kind of what happened with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? They were, they were responding to the culture of the day, and they got themselves in this little box, and they said, no one come inside my box, no one challenge me, no one stretch me, and I'm just going to stay right here. But the Lord may want to stretch you. The Lord may want you to raise a hand. The Lord may want you to open your mouth. The Lord may want you to lift a cry to the Lord or shout to the Lord, and he can develop those things in you. But not only is God looking for worshipers of spirit, God's also looking for truth worshipers. And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. Now, Jesus's word for mind here can correspond with the Hebrew word might. The gospel of Mark says, we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So Jesus is kind of combining mind and strength, or, or, or Matthew was, but let's take it one step at a time. To love the Lord our God with our mind speaks of our mental capacity. We are submitting to and growing in the intellectual knowledge of God in order to love him for who he truly is. You cannot worship what you do not know. You will not be able to love the God of glory if you do not know God. And knowing God means engaging your mind to seek understanding and learn the truth. I said some of us could get more in touch with our emotional side or our soul side of loving God. But many of us need to engage our minds in loving God. If you do not learn to love God with your mind, then when life doesn't feel good, your love for God will fizzle out. And I hear statements like this all the time. I feel like God isn't present. I hear, I don't feel like God is fair in this situation that I'm going through right now. I don't feel anything during my quiet time. God just feels so distant. 
I don't feel like God is moving right now in this worship service or in my Bible study or in my quiet time. And, and these kinds of statements have nothing to do with God and everything to do with loving him with your mind. Because our theology as a people, this is why the truth matters. Truth is like the logs that God puts on the fire pits of our heart that ignite the spirit to come out of us. You, you, can, you can express yourself outwardly all day long, but if the truth is far from you, you've got nothing. And so that's why you can't just worship him on a soul level. You've got to worship him on a soul and mind level. But our theology informs God's purposes in our suffering. Our theology declares God is always with us and he never leaves us or forsakes us. Our theology reminds us that God is sovereignly in control and working all things for our good. And our theology should stoke a deep, deep love for God when feelings aren't there. So are you loving God with all of your mind? And then lastly, the text expands to loving him with our strength. This is your vigor. This is your determination this is your service. God wants your perseverance. God wants your service and your sacrifice. He's given you a gift so that you can use it to bring him glory. 1 Peter 4.11, I love this verse. It says, whoever speaks, do so as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Everything we do is so that we could express our love for God, that he would be king, that he would have dominion. Romans 12.1, a popular verse. You're familiar with it. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Okay, I already told you that often the word in the New Testament for worship is proskuneo. This is not one of those. That, that means to lie prostrate, but the word for worship in the Greek here, they have three different words for our one word worship. The word here is latria, and it speaks of our religious service and duty to the Lord. And, and, and when you work for Christ, when you use your gifts for God, when you hold a door or seat people in the house of God or go over to someone's house and serve a widow or you serve the orphans or you serve the body of Christ, the New Testament calls that worship. Isn't that awesome? When you use the strength that God supplies in your life for the good of others and for the glory of God, the New Testament calls it worship. So it proclaims that the smallest, most insignificant role done for the glory of God can be an extravagant and sacrificial love for the Lord. Think about the widow's might. She was praised, right, for giving all that she had. It was very little. But she gave up that which she had and she was praised for it. Loving God is all of this together. It involves thought, sensitivity, intent, and action. It's an intelligent, feeling, willing, and serving love. It's whole person engagement caught up in the adoration of Jesus Christ, the lamb on his throne. But the temptation for all of us in the room today, the temptation for those of us is that we would love God in part, not in whole, rather than our love for God or the Lord exceeding and outweighing our love for anything else. It's easy to replace him as our first love and add him to the plethora of good blessings that we've inherited on the earth. 
So in Exodus, the Israelites in distress traded the glory of their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt for a carven image and a golden calf. We could do the same thing in our distresses here in America. Life gets hard, the going gets tough, and so we start worshiping the God of comfort or the God of ease or the God of country or the God of luxury or the God of feeling. And that's idolatry. Idols make you stupid. Idols made the Israelites stupid. Idols will make you run hard after something that is not God, and it will lead to destruction in your life. But Jesus, he taught us that it's not only the negative and hard things in life that steal our love for God. Often, it's the greatest blessings in this life that can steal our love for God. Sinclair Ferguson, a pastor, I think, convictionally writes this, the higher the position something occupies on the scale of divine blessing, the more subtle the temptation to worship it. The higher something lies or occupies on the scale of divine blessing, what are the most precious gifts that you have been given in this life? We are prone to worship the giver, or we're prone to worship the gift, not the giver. We're prone to worship the creation, not the creator. That's been the problem throughout history. And so what I think Sinclair Ferguson means is that every good and every perfect gift comes from above. It comes down from the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. And the most precious gifts God gives are meant to stoke our love for him and not the gift itself. So often our love gets consumed with our wives or our children or our husband Maybe you find yourself loving your house or your job or your accolades or your success. And these are the things that you're thinking about the most. Just going back to children, it's easy, right? To think, I want my child to experience the things in this life. I want my children to have a good reputation. I don't want them to feel like a stick in the mud. And so I, I, I center everything that I do around my children. And my, my home becomes a child-centered home because I'm putting the children on the throne rather than the God of glory who commands us to be holy and to be perfect and to be righteous and to walk humbly with God. It's gonna look different. You're gonna look different if you're a follower of Jesus than the world that is around you. And it's not always easy, but it is what loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength looks like. All of these good gifts should pale in comparison to your love for God. And the Christ follower who loves God with their whole being is often having their whole being wrapped up in lesser things. This is what Jesus said in Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Heesh. Kind of harsh. Jesus' words, not mine. What's he mean? This is a passage about counting the cost of following Jesus. Even if your family thinks you're lame, or that you're a traitor for following Jesus, he is worth your allegiance. Even if you lose everything precious to you that this life has to offer, it's better to follow Jesus. It's hard for us to understand in our culture because all of this is so free. But many brothers and sisters who turn from the Muslim faith, this is true. They're disowned by their mother and father. They're disowned by their family. They have to actually count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. And many of them give up everything to then go and follow Christ. 
Jesus proclaimed, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. And, and something that I fear for a church like ours, a church in America, is we, we face so many blessings <laughs> and, and, and spirituality can come so easy that we would just accept it as one of the good things that God has given us in the land of the free and the home of the brave. It is Christ exalted over all. We leave this world behind that we might follow Christ and that we might love him with our whole being. Does Jesus really want you to hate your father and your mother and your children and even your own life? No, he wants you to love what he's given you, but your love for God should surpass all of these things by a landslide. Your love for God should be an all-consuming passion of your life. If I were to follow and trace a trail of your time and your talent and your thoughts and your treasure, and it led me to a throne on your heart, what would be on the throne of your heart? The only one worthy is the God of glory. The only one worthy is Christ the Lamb who gave up his life so that you could become his righteousness. The hymn, Be Thou My Vision, proclaims, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only be first in my heart. O high King of heaven, my treasure thou art. So if Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven and 38 does anything for us this morning, it should cause us to repent. Jesus said in verse 38, this is the great and first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. We must cast down our idols, church family. We must turn from letting anything or anyone rival our love for the God of glory. We should repent for forgetting or for replacing or for neglecting or missing the exact image of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so if you're preaching the gospel to yourself every day, or if you are living in the freedom and the forgiveness of the gospel, you will live to love God through Christ because you have been forgiven so much. You couldn't keep God's commandments. You broke the law and are guilty of the law, but the gospel proclaims that Jesus was crushed for your iniquity. He was pierced for your transgressions. Upon him was the chastisement that has brought you peace. And with his wounds, you can be healed. You have been healed. And if you are being transformed into the image of the Son of God, the worship of Christ should continually spill out of you. Because the love of God for you is like a waterfall. So let your cup overflow. Let him spring up a well in your heart and in your soul that you can't help but spill over with worship, that you can't help but exude passion and glory to the King of Kings. As you love God with a whole person engagement caught up in the adoration of Christ the Lamb, your hunger for him will grow. Your thirst for his righteousness will grow. Your persistent devotion will begin to expand. Your desperation for his presence will be ignited. Your dependency on his spirit through prayer will increase. Your boldness to tell of his gospel will become more natural. Your radical love for others will begin to spill over, and we'll talk about that next week, but you will begin to delight and keep his law. You will begin to walk in a manner worthy of what he requires and what he saved you for. Psalm 16, 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. 
I want you to turn real quickly as we close to Romans chapter 8 with me. Or you can look at it on the screen, actually. It'll be there. You know Romans 8 verse 1 so well. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Paul continues to proclaim this glorious position for the believer that in Christ is the most important place you could ever find yourself this side of eternity. Every one of us in this room has to take account as to whether we are dead in our trespasses and sins or whether or not we've been made alive in Christ Jesus. Are you standing in Christ Jesus today? Are you standing on the foundation of the one who can bring you life and set you free? You deserve to be condemned, but because of Jesus Christ, you can be set free. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. Look at verse 2 of chapter 8. It's on the screen. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God, who loves, has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Your sinful flesh revealed that the law couldn't save you. You couldn't be perfect. You couldn't be holy like God is. He did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You don't got to walk according to the law anymore. You can stop trying to earn your way to God because the God of glory came to you. And he doesn't justify you anymore based on his commands. He justifies you based on the blood of Jesus who stretched out his perfect arms, who opened his perfect hands, who was grieved in his soul because of your sin. And yet he was nailed on that cross freely and willingly for you so that you wouldn't have to take the punishment, so that you wouldn't have to die and go to hell in condemnation because of your imperfection. He died. He became your sin so that you could become the righteousness of God so that you could one day stand before a God of glory who loved you enough to set you free and to make you holy and righteous and perfect. What a good and gracious God we serve. And I pray that it would stoke a love in your heart, soul, mind, and strength that is unrivaled by anything this world can offer you. Nothing that you find in this life will last only what's done for Jesus Christ will last. And that's where we focus our life. And so you might be here today and you're like, you know what? I, I don't have a relationship with God. I've yet to surrender my life to God. I, I, I love the world. Or I love myself. Or I love the things that I do that make me look good. Cast down those idols. Crush them. Get rid of them. Turn to the God of glory. Drop to your knees and repent and follow Christ. Declare that he is Lord of all and that he deserves your heart and your life's attention. Maybe you're here today and you are a believer and you, you say, I just keep falling into the same old sin patterns. I just keep doing the same things. Would you ask the Spirit to reveal 
the places in your heart where God needs to get on the throne? Would you ask the Spirit to reveal the places in your soul that, that you're allowing your feelings to take hold of you and your feelings to drive you rather than the Spirit of God who sets you free and who gives you life? Colossians proclaims, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the lust of the flesh. You want to overcome the lust of the flesh? Then walk by the Spirit. Stop trying to do it in your own strength. You might be here today and and you would say, I'm doing everything I can to surrender my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm doing everything I can to love him with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I would say to you, praise God. Let's keep going. Let's run this race with endurance for the prize that is set before us. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Jesus Christ.